0: Welcome to episode 41 of season two of the Search with Canda podcast. I am your host, Jack Chambers Ward, and this week I am joined by the best-selling author of Writing for Humans and Robots, and the founder of the Blogsmith, Maddie Osman. As I mentioned, Maddie has written a fantastic book, which I have read, called Writing for Humans and Robots. And that is essentially our topic for this week. We're going to dive into the importance of being able to write for both search engines from an SEO perspective and users from a human perspective, and why it's kind of important to have both and not just one. And you see, a lot of times you'll see, don't write for robots, just write for humans. And Maddie is here to basically explain why we should be doing. Both and the links for Maddie's social media website and to buy the book itself will be available in the show notes at search.withcanda.co.uk. Search with Canda is supported by Sistrix, the SEO's toolbox. Go to slash SWC if you want to check out some of their fantastic free tools such as their SERP snippet generator, HRF lang validator, checking out your site's visibility index, and of course, the all-important Google update tracker. And Citrix have been doing some fantastic blog posts recently, specifically around the recent updates. I know Steve Payne, the wonderful Steve Payne at Citrix, has done an analysis on the kind of fallout from the September 2022 updates. We had three of them. I don't know if you've been counting recently. And of course, we've recently had the spam October update as well so yeah we will have more analysis on that from the team at Citrix, I'm sure in the near future. Something I wanted to highlight on the blog this week is a recent post by Johannes Boyce talking about the new snippet layout that is including site names in SERPs. Now we haven't really covered much of the news because I've had a lot of guests on recently so let's dive into the news a little bit and a little bit of information before you go off and read Johannes's blog post in full Essentially, Google is now including site names in the SERPs themselves. If you don't include a site name, which you can control using schema, by the way, if you don't include one, it will include your domain name by default. But now you can include your favicon, which is now bigger than it was before, 48 pixels by 48 pixels, and it will include the site name at the top there. And I think this is part of Google basically trying to say, hey, We know where the information is going from and this is a verified source, essentially. So you'll be able to tell which site you're getting your information from on the SERPs just at a glance straight away. And hopefully that's kind of tying into the themes we've been seeing recently of helpful content and EAT and all that kind of thing. You'll instantly get an idea of which domain you're looking at on the SERP without even clicking through to the domain itself hopefully that will clarify and if you do want information like i said go to Systrix.com slash blog and the latest post at the time of recording from the 20th of october is there for you to get a bit more information about how site names are being included in serps that's Systrix.com slash blog for all the latest information and we recorded this episode a little while ago but actually coming up on the 29th of october a few days after this podcast goes out, is actually Maddie's birthday. So please do go and say happy birthday to Maddie on Twitter on the 29th of October and share the love, essentially, and say, I enjoyed your episode on Search for the Candidate and happy birthday because Maddie was awesome. And uh, yeah, and without any further ado, welcome to the show, Maddie Osman. How are you? I'm doing
1: great. How about you, Jack?
0: I'm good. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Doing well. I know it's a lot earlier for you than it is for me right now. So <laughs> I, I appreciate you hopping on a podcast this early in the morning.
1: <laughs> no problem. It's a productive start to my day.
0: Nice. Have you got a, a coffee or a tea or anything to keep, to kickstart your morning?
1: Got some green tea.
0: Nice. Kicking uh, off with pa- the green tea.
1: Passionately pear.
0: <laughs> oh, nice. That sounds good, actually. That's not it's like a it's good actually combination. quite
1: lovely.
0: <laughs> I'll take your recommendation. Maybe that'll have to be my new like podcast drink. I feel like go. warming the vocal cords and stuff is good for, for doing like voiceovers <laughs> and stuff like that. So well, I hope ha-
1: so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but just in case the listeners don't know who you are, first of all, shame on them. Second of all, give, <laughs> give them a little intro to who you are and what we're going to be talking about this week.
1: Absolutely. So um, I would say my main gig is as the founder of the Blogsmith Content Agency. We're a data-driven content agency that focuses on B2B technology brands. Um, And um, I would say our focus is to translate sort of like developer speak into something that the layperson can understand. That's our favorite thing to do. (laughs) <laughs> and um my my new title is best selling author of the book writing for humans and robots the new rules of content style which you can think of as kind of like a modern day update to the elements of style for the global internet audience so those are those are kind of my my main things these days
0: Nice. That's a very nice title to be able to add on is best-selling author. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Live in a, the dream right there.
1: <laughs> put a lot of effort into my Amazon launch, I will say.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I can tell. It was all over my Amazon, and I know okay. <laughs> um, I, know, I know a few of my friends who have, who have checked the book out as well. Um, so we will actually be diving into that as a topic as well, kind of covering some of the stuff you talk about in the book, and then kind of going around to talk about kind of more the SEO side of things, more of the writing side totally. of things and and dive it all around. But I think we need to kick things off with what my initial thought was when I saw the book on my sure. Amazon listing, which is the title. I think this is a very common question for you at this point, but Absolutely. it has to be the place to start, right? As an SEO, I'm like, hold on a minute. There's an and in that sentence. Why is there an and there? (laughs) Um, The writing for humans and robots is the key Mm -hmm. there, right? I think that's why it kind of caught my attention, certainly, when I saw it on Amazon and why I kind of found it so interesting diving through and and understanding kind of the structure of the book and all that kind of stuff. So what was your thought process initially, first of all, coming up with the title and then kind of building that as both a writer and an SEO yourself?
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's. Quite a polarizing title, I would <laughs> say, and um, you know it's it's interesting when i was when I was trying to decide on the title. Um, I was really drawn to that one, and I don't think I even realized like how much people were talking using that similar language, like in tweets, you know, and on LinkedIn and conversations about SEO, and so like these conversations have been happening for a while about kind of what's the difference. The or, right? But we're talking about the and writing for humans and robots. And so I think that there is a way. I think that the human is the most important reader and user, ultimately, no question about that. Um, But I think that there is a way to kind of balance the needs of the user with sort of like the technical needs of, for example, a search engine spider, the quote unquote robot that helps to surface relevant content to the human when they're searching for it. And so I think kind of like the difference between these two users and how we negotiate the difference is first of all, humans, they're the only ones who can buy from us, right? They're the ones who have empathy. You know, they're the ones that we have to use our humanity to appeal to. Whereas robots, they respond to things like descriptiveness, like keywords, specific language and intent matching where, you know, somebody's typing something in and they want, they have something in mind that they're looking for at the other end of that search. And I think that we can, we can optimize for the robot that is trying to index and classify things for that human reader um, in a way that is natural enough that it doesn't affect the reading experience. So I think I think that's that's what the book is about. It's about balancing the needs of, of both of these users, um, but understanding that the human is ultimately the only one that's going to buy from you. So you have to keep them kind of first.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think you do that in a really interesting way. Like I said, when I was reading through the book a few weeks ago, it was really interesting understanding the structure. You start with the human side of things, mm-hmm. and then we move on to the robot side of things, and then we bring it all together in that kind of third and final part where... Right. I think it's so key to understand the differences, like you said, and then the similarities and how it can all work together. And again, polarizing, controversial, whatever—I totally agree (laughs) with you. There is a balance there, right? There, there is a, there is a right way of understanding, you know, using grammar and all that kind of stuff. And and specifically, like you were saying, making technical details and information more accessible to more people is so important nowadays. But also having your site be readable by Google or whatever search engine you know, your users are using understanding crawlability and indexability and all that kind of stuff and the more technical side of things, will I think will really benefit a lot of writers and understanding the writing side of things will benefit a lot of SEOs who are more kind of on that technical side of things. So I think you've done an amazing job there of kind of balancing the two and kind of bringing them all together and hopefully being a positive influence on a lot of people.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thank you for saying that. And um, what's kind of interesting is, I wrote all the book chapters before deciding on the title and even before deciding on that order of the chapters.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: So that's something that came about really like at the end of edits. And and that's when it became clear to me. I knew that I wanted to write about, I wanted SEO to be a part of what I was writing about. And I wanted to do it in a way that wasn't super um, timely. like it, it, Like it wouldn't, be untrue quickly, you know, like I wanted it to be something that would be relevant for as long as possible and so that's why I tried to stay away from talking about really specific tools or like really specific tactics, but um it's just interesting because it's like that's just kind of the way that like my agency how we look at things it's all about the storytelling and the word choice and um, the visuals and things like that but you know it's just as important to make sure that we're doing that keyword research ahead of time and, and understanding how people are thinking about searches so that we can connect them so so yeah it just it, it kind of came about um a- after the fact after writing the draft
0: that's really interesting because for me like op- opening to that I, I read it on my uh on my wife's tablet so i read nice. it like kind of kindle kind of thing and opening on that contents page and seeing the structure there that were so clear sure. to me like Oh, yeah, that's the obvious way to do it. Like you start (laughs) with the more accessible stuff. Everybody has learned grammar. Everybody, you know, studied English and all that kind of stuff when they were in high school or whatever it was. And then you introduce the more technical stuff as you go forward. And then you bring it all back together on the third part. That makes so much sense to me. And I I really appreciate you mentioned the the timelessness of it as well. I think that was pretty clear in me reading through it as I've done a bit of writing (laughs) myself. I've done a bit of SEO myself as well. So kind of trying to come at it from both ends as well. And you mentioned the element of style earlier on. I know you referenced the AP style book quite a few times oh, throughout yes. the book as well. <laughs> Those have lingered on for so long in so many writers' bookshelves. I'm ho- fingers crossed there will be now copies of <laughs> writing for humans and robots like slotted <laughs> next to them for the next hundred years or whatever it is. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Where- wherever we are in the next hundred years. Right, right. Um, But do you think there are still kind of influences and lessons we can learn from uh, like Strunk and White, the original kind of public, the original publishing, which was striked back in the, oh, it was the 1918, something like hundred yep. years ago or so. And then it was republished in the fifties and sixties and updated. <laughs> Is there lessons we can still take from the element of style now that you think are still applicable in 2022, even as we're, you know, as you were saying, very digital, very online these days.
1: Oh yeah. No, I think, I think most of the things that were written in the elements of style are still relevant and, as you brought up AP style, I think that too. I mean, style changes, that's that's true no matter who tries to write about it. And so, you know, there are, there are aspects of it that, that have to be re-examined. But I think like some of the things that I was thinking about from the elements of style that are still relevant and, and to some extent are like even in the Blacksmith Style Guide, which is what the book is based on, are things like... Um, using the active voice um when i when i used to be more focused on the writing side of things versus running the business i mean that's something that editors always edit for active voice active voice and so coming up with you know sort of like mechanisms for identifying when you're not doing that is is really important i think as a modern day writer um It's things like omitting needless words in the Blacksmith Style Guide. We have a couple of different ways to try to catch this Um, rules and things that we can go by, but it's, it's where it's like simply or just, you know, they don't really add a lot of value or saying something like, obviously, which might insult the reader's intelligence, you know, (laughs) doesn't add value. And um, a couple of other things are things like avoiding fancy words. That's also in the elements of style. Um, It makes a lot of sense for an internet reader who's trying to skim. And, um, you know, the fact that in general, an internet audience is about a seven to eighth grade reading level. So you have to consider that as well. And then um, the last thing that I noticed when I was flipping through the book yesterday elements of style is um, use figures of speech sparingly. So in the blogs of style guide, we have a section on like common cliches and, and ways that you could simplify and kind of get away from that because it's just like, What's the word? It's almost like it's like trite or something, you know, to see the same language over and over again. It's like a crutch kind of for a writer.
0: Yeah, definitely. And
1: people people understand what you're trying to say, but it's just that it kind of comes across almost like lazy, whether it is or not. That's just how it comes across. And so for example, instead of saying like can of worms, you could say problem, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Instead of saying get your feet wet, you could use try
0: <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely i think that ties really nicely into like you're saying about the eighth grade reading level mm. there and talking about accessibility especially so my background coming from working in international schools mm. and working with a lot of non-native english speakers coming on to then learn to write in english and also do seo in english and i know some you know some of the best seos of the world are non-native english speakers right. who are working in english so Huge credit to them, Seriously? first of all. <laughs> and I think I think it's really interesting that ties into, like almost just inherently brings up accessibility, right? Yeah. That there, there is an average reading level and not everyone, as you were saying, working with your tech-based clients and stuff, not everyone is going to know what you're writing about. And depending on your target audience, of course, some of them, I've worked with clients whose audience are specifically very educated. Right. And then I have to I have to brush up on stuff. Right. And be like, oh, right. okay. <laughs> I need to know about your niche and your industry because your audience is already at that level. Right, that's what they But expect. so often you will find Yeah, exactly. You'll so often find the audience is coming in completely fresh because organic search results are so often at the top end of that funnel, right? That's the the initial research stage where you're discovering this topic for the first time or you've just discovered this problem and now you need like you said you now need to find that problem and and solve it so you're coming in not knowing anything ahead of time and going in with simple straightforward language i think you you are totally right obviously and other adverbs just drive me insane sometimes just people chucking in adverbs all the time
1: it does that help just
0: to se- seemingly buff out word count because right? People think think word count matters in SEO and all that kind of stuff.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I think it's interesting too. You bring up accessibility. I think that the other like big change between like the elements of style, which was written fully a century ago, and for a different world for probably even like a small subset of the world because. You know, E.B. White is probably thinking like, "Oh, this is going to be for like people in the U.S." You know, maybe even his local community or something. And of course, it exploded. So now everybody has access to it. But um, I think one thing that maybe he didn't consider when writing it is like the global, you know, certainly internet audience and the fact that you're you're talking, whether intentionally or not, to people from all these different cultures and backgrounds. and So beyond just being smart with grammar or whatever, it's also about addressing people with respect and, um, and using inclusive language. So like one thing, we're working on a bigger update to the Blacksmith Style Guide that is like a, a style guide just about inclusiveness. Right now we have a small section, but it's things like um, when you're talking about people instead of saying like a blind person, it's a person who is blind, you know, people first language. So that's that's just one example, you know, it's-
0: So you're d- defining them by their living conditions right. or their health conditions or whatever it is. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
1: or like, um, you know, somebody, if somebody's being like tried for a crime, they're not guilty until they're found guilty, you know, it's like an accused <laughs> person, not like a murderer or something.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So, so things like that, yeah. I think it's really, it's really important to think about how you may be unintentionally alienating your audience. Whether it's words with obviously that insults their intelligence, or it's something <laughs> that maybe makes them feel bad about just like a condition that they live with.
0: Yeah, it's something I talked a lot about with Chloe Smith a little while ago, talking about how to be more inclusive in SEO. Mm. But now bring it into writing but well, chloe's obviously a writer themselves as well like talking about their poetry and how you know crafting all of that kind of stuff sure. and understanding using like gender neutral terms and things yep. like that 99% of the time you can get away with using pronouns that are they them in your writing seriously and a, a lot of it is kind of rooted in that old-fashioned like all machines are female <laughs> and oh the, the your car's right? a good old girl and all that kind of stuff and it's like Really? Are we back again? Thinking back to like 1918, yep. like cars have just started. <laughs> now we're in the age of the internet. I think we can get used to just using the correct pronouns, even in writing, yep. even in speech, all that kind I think of stuff. So.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but moving on to moving away from the humans for a second, talking about sure. robots, let's let's get into another controversial topic, which is AI content yes. generation and production. It, as I said, it is very controversial. I know uh, some of the writing staff here at Kanda are very against it and <laughs> some of the more technical for some of the more technical staff will uh, use it to irritate people online basically <laughs> <laughs> um and i find it fascinating yeah. how do you think it has kind of affected writing over the last few years since it's become more prevalent now basically everyone has access to things like gpt2 and gpt3 totally. how do you think that has affected kind of the writing style and kind of the inspiration for you or i guess for writing for humans right no
1: it's so interesting that this question like comes up often in tandem with this subject and i i didn't bring it up in the book at all (laughs) even though i have opinions okay so how it's affected kind of like the state of affairs with writing i think that you know one thing that we can say for sure is that people are a little bit freaked out and i get it i mean the idea that a robot can take your job i think is something that scares anyone in any industry starting with manufacturing but certainly now yeah it's it's
0: been around in science fiction for like decades at this point right right. we have
1: we have many stories to to try to navigate this um some somewhat unsuccessfully but (laughs) yeah so I I'm personally not worried about it and it, it comes back to what I said at the beginning humans have empathy robots at least at this point are not capable of it i think you know if we get to like westworld robots who like maybe <laughs> um you know conscious you know they if they if they dream right like then they might they might be humans at that point or, or close enough for the fact that they could probably take our jobs but that's that's like a whole nother <laughs> if we get to that point we have other things to worry about um
0: we're spinning off into a Westworld review podcast which, right now. Let's just, let's just go I and love. talk about Westworld. So we could do that. <laughs>
1: but um, yeah, I just, I think at this point, a robot is is nowhere near capable of resembling humans in the way that we are uniquely human. And so to give like a couple of other examples, I think that robots such as like these GPT-3 tools, um, they can't like format things thoughtfully. They can't art direct. We have seen AI tools that generate images. It's fun. It's goofy. But like, you never know what you're going to get, you know? It's kind of a crapshoot. Whatever you type in and and what you get as a result. Even if they have a bunch of different levers that you can change and different styles. So they can't art direct yet. Um, They don't necessarily understand tone of voice. I think they can detect it but I don't think they can generate it. Not to, a not to a fine tuned point. And then I'm trying to think if there was like one other thing that um, they can't do, but I think mostly it comes down to that lack of empathy. And, and just to kind of like take that one step further, um, people do tests, you know, I haven't done this myself and I'd be very curious too, but like something a writer wrote a human writer wrote next to something a robot has created and just seeing like in a split test you know what what performs better I think that even if they look almost exactly identical I think that that's the thing with these AI tools is that at first glance they look like really smart really well put together you know whatever but when it comes to like actually converting action, whether that's a buy or a click to a website or whatever, I don't think that they perform well because they don't have empathy.
0: Mm, yeah. We were talking about this in the studio the other day and thinking about how can AIs detect AI-generated content and therefore can uh. Google understand what is AI-generated and what isn't? And we had some examples where, you know, we just used GPT-3 to generate a sentence. We were doing like fake wedding <laughs> nice. vows and horoscopes and all the kind of like short, short sure. pieces of text are like a paragraph or two, not going too crazy, but long enough that you kind of get that sense of tone of voice yeah. and stuff. So it's not just a sentence where there's no context. But as soon as you changed even one word or one letter, the whole thing completely, <laughs> you know, dropped out. And it was like, oh no, this is totally written by a human. And you literally had to change one word in like 150 words and the AI could not tell it was written by AI. And I was like, that is really interesting because it was clearly following the logic and the algorithm, like sentence by sentence, word for word. And as soon as you essentially, to to use a turn of phrase, I know we're trying (laughs) to avoid that, but throw throw a spanner in the works, throw a wrench in the works, it suddenly doesn't know what it's doing. And it's like, oh, then it's not following my pattern, therefore somebody else must have written it. And it's this really interesting thing. Just the smallest little changes can then I think that's what a lot of people are using it for from my experience is kind of to get the the gist essentially to to lay down the foundation for a lot of stuff. I've seen it in a lot of ad copy for a lot of like page search stuff, Same. people using it for for PPC, short ad copy mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Generating on mass, I need to go, you know, this client needs a hundred ads and we need to go live in the next two days, Same. all this kind of stuff. And then you can you can generate them super quickly, and then kind of fine tune them and and tweak them and all that totally. kind of stuff. Do, can you? Do you think you can kind of spot a lot of AI generated stuff at first glance? As a writer, as an SEO, you've got both sides of your brain working there. Are you able to kind of spot it straight off, or have you been fooled a couple of times by AI stuff? <laughs> I know I definitely have because I know I know news sites have used it before and then revealed it at a later date. You know? Right, right. Ah. That new story was written by AI and stuff well,
1: like that. Well, first of all, I think just to to address what you said earlier, all grammar rules fall apart in in spoken language. <laughs> <laughs> I, or at least this is what I try to tell my mom when she corrects me. But <laughs> I'm like, it's particular. Yeah, your, your
0: mom's an English teacher, right? She, like she's... she is, yes. Yeah,
1: so she's <laughs> yeah. very particular. Um, so, <laughs> to, yeah, to get back to the AI subject. So, yeah, it's like I've and I've tried to find... Like a tool that can detect it, right? And that there's just not really a, a great solution for that yet, which is probably why it's kind of like a wild, wild west on AI tools right now, because until Google figures out how to detect that, and maybe, maybe they can, right? Like we we just don't know. Um, but until they can figure it out, and until that detection tool software is available for others, it's kind of like. Yeah, it's like open season on AI-generated copy. So it's it's kind of like the perfect time to experiment because um, it won't get penalized necessarily. They do say, Google, in the quality reader guidelines that AI, you know, robot-generated copy, when, however they phrase it, um, is considered spam. So that is something to think about in the back of your head if you're playing with these tools. But to your point, Jack, if you... If you don't just end with what the robot generates and you add to it, you know, you edit it a little bit, then maybe Google can't detect that anymore. So yeah, yeah. So I think that's, (laughs) that's really the key, right? Is that you don't start and stop with what the robot says. And I, I do think that there is a benefit to using it. I would say for me, the benefit that I see is using it for, um, like inspiration, you know like i'm looking at a blank page maybe i could generate like a very basic outline and so that you know sends me down a path of research and um you know discovery or whatever or um maybe i wrote a great article but i'm really struggling with the title and so using a like a title generator tool and then fine tuning and maybe using some like headline analyzer tools to come up with some you know power words or whatever um that's another great you know, potential use case to to answer your question, can can I detect when it's robot written or not? Not necessarily. <laughs> not a not certainly yeah, not at I first agree. glance. <laughs> so it's no, it's tough. But I, I think the real question is does it does it do its job? And and also um what part does it play in your process? Is it the be all and end all or Is it just one piece? And so another thing that, another AI tool that I actually really love is this, it's like a Google Docs extension called WordTune. And the way that that works is that you have to already write a sentence and then it suggests ways to rewrite the sentence. So it's like, it's
0: still coming
1: from me, right? I wrote the original sentence, just trying to make it better.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's really interesting. Yeah, I think like you said, that's almost coming from the other end of it, right? So you're not, you're not tweaking the AI content, AI is tweaking the human generated content right. and yeah, using different words. And again, being able to adjust reading levels or turns of phrase or whatever it is, Exactly, that is fascinating. And I know something you touched on in the book as well is making things, as you were saying, more conversational is such a difficult thing. I think from a lot of the robot written stuff I've oh, seen for sure. because <laughs> it follows such a strict structure you can really kind of tell like, wow, that was really blunt. It was like almost <laughs> like it was oh, written by a robot, of course. <laughs> like, <laughs> so was, I, I, I find that fascinating. And uh yeah. You touched on tools there. Mm. I know WordTune is something I'm definitely going to go and check out now. And I know you've you've mentioned it on a few other shows before. So i I will <laughs> definitely leave a link for that in the show notes if you want to go and check that out, listeners. Um I know I definitely will. Are there any other tools you'd kind of recommend in twenty twenty two as a writer, mm. as an SEO that are kind of like essential to your day-to-day as, as founder of Blogsmith and as a writer day-to-day as well.
1: Totally. Yeah, I have a couple suggestions that are SEO-specific and then I have a couple that are not SEO-specific. So <laughs> um, I think one of the main categories that comes to mind just with asking the question is content optimization tools, which kind of bridges that human-robot gap, I would say, um, because... So tools like ClearScope, Phrase, MarketMuse, Surfer, um, these are all really great options. Um, we at the blogs, with the, we primarily use ClearScope and Phrase. Um, Phrase more at the beginning end of creating something because it's more of like a brief. It's got a lot of research um, statistics to look into, things like that. And then ClearScope more at the end to make sure that we're weaving in it, the way that they work, I guess, just for anybody who doesn't know, is that in general they go and they kind of look at the top ten to thirty search results. And what they do is they extract entities, so like nouns, people, places, things. So those are kind of like your semantic keywords. It's it's like what do what do we expect based on what's already ranking? Which again, you don't want to end with the robot here. You still have to think of ways that you as a human can make this data that you find unique because you don't want to just add to kind of the void of what already exists. You want to create something that adds new value. Otherwise what's the point, but so yeah, clear scope phrase. Those are great tools for basically taking care of the research side of things or a huge chunk of it and curating in a really nice to use format. Um, I think that you also need some sort of like all-in-one SEO tool in your stack. If this is your main job, if you're a small business owner, it probably doesn't make sense to get a subscription to like Ahrefs, which is what we use, or SEMrush, which is another really great option. Um, and and I do, maybe another link we could add to is I have this search engine journal article about free keyword research tools. So I'll I'll share mm. it with you. Um, yeah, yeah, but so that might be a better solution if you're more of like if this isn't your your whole job, right? But if it is, then it definitely makes sense to spend the <laughs> hundred plus a month on an all-in-one SEO tool because the way that we use, for example, Clearscope or Phrase is that we're doing our keyword research first. We're identifying a primary keyword because that's then how you generate the report. So you can't. You you shouldn't do that without doing some background keyword research. Otherwise, you're probably just going to be wasting the credits that you're paying for because you're just you're just guessing. Um, I think it's important when you're creating content, especially, but I mean, probably really any job, to have um like a project or like a process management tool. Mm,
0: yeah. And so
1: this is a big thing for me. It was realizing that project management tools like don't actually work that well for me. And <laughs> I could never find something that was like the perfect fit for how I work, all the little teeny things that I care about. And then I want the people who work for me to consider as they're doing a task. And so that's why I use a tool called Process Street, which allows me to build my ideal workflow and basically like have people on the team come in at the most relevant time. So they're not like waiting on somebody else to do something that they don't have something like burning a hole in their inbox or whatever. And um, Process Street's really great for that. It has a lot of advanced features. Um, and I'm actually going to do a webinar with them in the very near future about that. So, you know, by the time this comes out, that that, that might be available. And you, and you can learn more about my content production process because that's what we're going to talk about. Um, I think you also need to think about how you're documenting your processes so that they can be repeatable so that people on your team Mm. can understand what your intent was in creating them and how they should execute them. So for us, it's really simple, like Notion, you know, just having kind of like a place where you can, you can just add information. Um, One of our customers, which is also a tool that we use is Scribe, and it's a really great Chrome extension that. Basically you hit record and then it takes a screenshot of like every click that you make and you can add useful um, detail on top of that um, in terms of, you know, creating a process document. So that's another great way, an easy way, I think, to to document the ways that you do things. Mm. And then I, I, the last thing I was going to mention are uh, just thinking about graphics. And so tools like Canva lot better than nothing there's a lot of great things you could do if you're not a designer um
0: it's a lot better than using paint right (laughs) certainly
1: an upgrade from paint and um or if you're like me and you realize that like you appreciate art but it's like hard for you to create it then maybe working with like an agency we use design pickle so it's kind of like that mix of like tool and like service but what's really cool about design pickle is that you can um even though they're a service you can like hook their tool up to zapier and so you can create like forms and stuff for your team and make it like really easy to communicate with them so those are my those are my main suggestions
0: nice i'm taking notes as we go <laughs> <laughs> i'm definitely gonna go and check some of these out after we finish this podcast Do it. to tie up into some more seo stuff i guess outside of the more obvious things i'm sure plenty of our listeners know about like type writing optimizing for titles and and meta descriptions and kind of getting your H1s right and all that kind of stuff. Is there anything that springs to your mind when you think of content SEO that doesn't get talked about enough or that goes underutilized or flies under the radar for a lot of people? Sure.
1: Um, My answers are going to be quasi SEO and maybe (laughs) mostly user experience, which with the Core Web Vitals update, I mean, many other updates before it, but certainly with that one, I think we we realize user experience is pretty important, hard to quantify. Yeah, definitely
0: something you shouldn't neglect, right? Absolutely. Yeah, exactly.
1: So I think it's things like like having a clickable table of contents. That's a, that's a big trend that mm. I've seen lately. Not even just at the beginning of the article, but sometimes it's like a floating bar to the side of it.
0: I I saw that the other day. I literally saw a. Uh, table of contents like you said that expands at the beginning and then is hovering at the sidebar and then each of the parts is a jump link so you you anchor link through to each section i was like that's really nice i like that (laughs) as a user and as an seo i was like oh that's really tasty (laughs) (laughs)
1: yeah so people people like that and it helps them and i think it it speaks to that like internet reader who's a skimmer you know like that's just that's just what they do so that's a big one it's things like using descriptive alt text that incorporates a keyword, but without compromising the utility of that alt text. So what I mean by that is not keyword stuffing or not putting in a keyword and leaving it at that, but making it truly descriptive since the purpose of the alt text is to help somebody using assistive technology like a screen reader.
0: It's almost like you're writing for humans and robots, right? <laughs>
1: but but yes, also the the yeah, so the, the robot, it not just the screen reader, but also Google's search engine spiders use that alt text to understand like the context of the content because they can't see it, right? That's another that's another limitation of robots. They don't have retinas or whatever. <laughs> so so they rely on us to to explain things. I think another thing, this is this is kind of more of an engagement thing, but It's things like embedding videos in your content, and it doesn't necessarily have to be your video as long as it's relevant to the content itself. But that's something that tends to increase time on page, which, you know, keeps somebody around on your site longer, Um, helps to just like build that relationship with them, I think. The last thing I was going to say is just in general, skimmability, what can you do to create headings that are truly descriptive and useful so that if there is a specific question you have, you can jump right to the correct heading. It's things like in the Blacksmith Style Guide, we talk about paragraphs being like three lines or less in general so that there's a lot of white space using bullet points having sentences that are no more than about two lines, because otherwise you start to get into run on sentence territory. So a lot of these things are more about user experience, but also readability, which has kind of an indirect effect on SEO.
0: Yeah, definitely. And from the other side of it, what are, I guess, some of the common SEO practices you've seen do the opposite and make things less readable and more difficult for users to then actually kind of impact that style guide essentially
1: sure Now that's a great question i think most of that comes down to over optimizing for keywords so what like one thing that we've recently been talking about at the blogsmith is having like a maximum for how we use keywords which is something we should have done honestly a long time ago but you know everything happens just out of a need
0: optimizing for stuffability or whatever you want to call it. Exactly.
1: <laughs> I think that's mostly where people get into trouble is when is when they they think about that more than the reader experience, you know, and not not thinking about, you know, maybe like the synonyms that you could weave in when it is starting to feel a little too stuffy or um yeah, I mean even just like what we're talking about with images and incorporating alt tags like just using like the same alt text for every image or something like that, I think I think that's the main thing. I'm trying to think of if there's anything else like super notable about how SEOs mess up <laughs> but it mostly comes down to following the data without considering the human,
0: yeah, I think the really common one I've seen is people really holding tight to the title like length, you know the, all uh, that seventy characters that five hundred pixel thing sure. and then making the title actually read in a really weird way and completely breaking that sentence. Like, oh, but I got it. Got to get it down to 70 characters. It's got to fit within the title restrictions. And you get like, almost like the classic headline stuff. You see it in all the like newspapers where they get like three or four words on a big tabloid front page. And it's like, okay, I get it. It's a tagline, but that sentence is not, that's not how English works. Yeah, no, (laughs) that's
1: that's a fair point. And I think like one thing that we've created some guidelines for writers about that's along the same vein of what we're talking about is like, if, if you're trying to use a keyword and it's like truly awkward, I think that Google is at the point and probably because of like the BERT update back in 2019, mm. which for anybody who doesn't know, it just made it so that Google could understand a query reading it from right to left and from left to right. So it understood like what each word in the sentence meant compared to the next word next to mm. it. So I think that because of the BERT update now, um, it's it's not the same as in the past when it was like exact match keywords and like you have to fit mm. it in no matter what or else Google's not sophisticated enough to understand that that's what you're getting at. That's that's your main keyword. But now they do because of BERT. So, Say, for example, taking out an article like A or an is going to improve readability. Just do it. You know, like Google. I um, don't think that Google is going to penalize you for that at this point. That's not been my experience.
0: Yeah, that, I totally agree. <laughs> well, thank you for the fantastic advice and tips and all that kind of stuff along the way. How could people find out more about you and Writing for Humans and Robots? Sure.
1: So very happy to be here. Thank you for extending the invitation. Um, Really great questions. And um, as far as after this, I'm probably most active on Twitter. So it's at Maddie Osman. Um, Theblogswith.com is where you can learn a little bit more about what we do at my agency. And then writingforhumansandrobots.com, you can learn all about the book you can download the first chapter for free, which is my favorite chapter. It's all about word <laughs> choice and writing. So it is from the human side. And And then you can, you can grab the book on Amazon if you're intrigued. It's available on Kindle and in print. And interestingly enough, the print has outsold the Kindle
0: so far. Oh, interesting. That's cool. <laughs> for very, for very a book cool. about
1: the internet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the fact that all these like thinking forward and digital, but we want to Paperback book in our hands. Just like every writer
1: copy. has the elements of style on their <laughs> shelf, so I'm I'm happy that it worked out that way.
0: Exactly. We we'll, we we'll, like I said, we'll see that next to the APC style book and elements of style on every bookshelf in the future. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed.
1: Fingers crossed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me, Maddie. It's been an absolute pleasure. Likewise. And that about wraps us up for this week. Thank you very much to Maddie Osman for joining me. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to Maddie and talk about her fantastic book. Like I said, at the top of the show, links for everything we've talked about, including some of the tools Maddie recommended, her website, the book website, and all of her social media links will be available in the show notes at search.withcanda.co.uk. I've got some more fantastic guests coming up, including Jamar Ramos, Daniel K. Chung, and Jeff Grill coming up in the next few weeks as well. They're already recorded and ready to go so uh yeah mark and i will also be back with some live linkedin q a stuff and we're working on doing some more live streams and expanding our capacity there without revealing too much we've got big things planned for the new year so stay tuned and if you would like to get in contact of course you can find me on social media i am jlw chambers on twitter and linkedin if you'd like to come on the show if you'd like to be a guest if you have something interesting to say about seo or pbc please do let me know. But in the meantime, thank you very much for listening and have a lovely week.